It's all about your health, your wellness. Radio MD. RadioMD.com. Get healthier, get fit, eat better, have a richer quality of life. Health on the go. Staying well with Melanie Cole, MS. Is there a link between mental illness and acts of violence? What drives somebody over that edge, as they say? What makes a person go from seemingly a nice neighbor to somebody who shoots up at a school or something? My guest is licensed clinical psychologist, Dr. Sheila Raja. Welcome to the show. So is there a link between mental illness and murder? Have we been missing something with some of these mass shooting have we been missing mental illness that maybe we could have caught had we been paying closer attention? Well, you know, here's the thing. We have seen so many of the mass shootings in the news lately, and unfortunately, that is a kind of violence that is on the rise in our culture. And there does seem to be some link that we are seeing between untreated mental illness and mass shooting, although it's not, you know, not 100%, and we're still... trying to understand it because, thankfully, it's still a rare event, although it's on the rise. Okay, so we're starting to see this link. What can drive somebody to these acts of violence? I mean, do we typically see, you're you're a clinical psychologist, do we typically see that maybe it wasn't even mental illness, but it was something in their past, you know, it was something like in movies like Psycho, you know, it was his mother and all these things. Is that media or is that really what's going on? Well, you know, it's such a complicated topic and especially if we're talking about mass shootings, it's really important I think for people to remember that the majority of people who are suffering from mental illness and the National Institutes of Mental Health um, suggests that as many as 1 in 17 Americans suffer from a serious mental illness, the vast majority of those people are not going to be violent. You know, they're just not. Um, But I think that what sometimes happens is we have a perfect storm, you know, of risk factors. So we can think about it in terms of risk factors, right? Things like um, someone who's very socially isolated, maybe having a violent background themselves, coming from a violent home or a violent community, substance abuse issues, anger management issues, um, a history of prior violence or a history of threats that maybe were red flags but nobody really paid attention to, despair, hopelessness, those kinds of things definitely put people at risk. So, and those are certainly even some warning signs if you know somebody, you know, that, that is going through some of these things. Are there things that people say Dr. Raja, that that you take that you really should be taking seriously because people make comments all the time, but whether well, those comments come to fruition is a question we all ask ourselves. Exactly. Well, and that's why I think we really need to look seriously and take those kinds of threats seriously. And, you know, it's one thing if somebody mentions off the cuff, you know, I feel really upset and I could go and... Yeah, although even that kind of joke you'd take seriously, right? If someone says, my God, I could go and shoot my coworkers, I feel so upset. Well, you know, we should take that seriously. But then we should also take a look and say, huh, is this person kind of isolated in the community? Do they have easy access to firearms that I know about? Do they talk about, you know, that being one of their hobbies? Because we know that, you know, firearms are a big part of this mix as well, sort of the easy access and um, having them so readily available 
makes everything much more lethal. So we, I think we do have to take it seriously, and all of those risk factors I've mentioned, like anger, social isolation, substance abuse, are there those other red flags, in which case we should take a threat very seriously. Well, you mentioned firearms, and really we could do a whole show on that, and I'm very passionately opposed to the availability of them, but I know that there is now, will we call it profiling, if mental, if people with declared mental illness, clinical depression, bipolar disorder, you know, any of these kinds of things are denied firearms, how do we draw that line? I think everyone should be denied firearms, but that's just me. So how do you draw the line, though, and how do they determine that, yes, this person should not be allowed access to firearms? Well, scares the heck out of me. That's an extremely important question, and I think one that we're really grappling with, because... Um, the National Institutes of Mental Health estimates that one in four Americans suffer from some sort of diagnosable mental illness. That's a, if, you, if you count depression and things like that, it's a lot of people. And so, you know, we don't want to stigmatize people for getting help, um, you know, and so we don't want it to be that, you know, that's the only thing that could stop someone from obtaining a firearm. What I think is that we need to look at gun ownership in our culture in a more tailored way. I really think that we as parents, as educators, as people in the community need to really take a look at ourselves and say, hey, do I have curious little kids at home who can easily access a weapon? Do I have a socially isolated teenager who I think, you know, might be at risk? And that's a hard question for a parent to ask themselves, isn't it? To say, do I have a teenager that might be showing some signs of depression? Because we have to think about not only homicide, but suicide. So do I want that weapon in my home? You know, do I have a history of a volatile relationship? In which case, do I want that firearm in my home? You know, we have to be asking ourselves some hard questions, I think. I think we really do, too, and the American Academy of Pediatrics has statistics that show that firearms in a home subject them to a more likelihood of having a teen commit suicide with that firearm what might have or commit murder what might have been an, a, a solution that took a long time to try and solve becomes a much easier solution when there's a, the, the availability of a firearm but that being put aside when it sort of crosses that line and as you say we don't want to stigmatize it and we don't want people to not want to come forward with their mental illness what do we do if you sense that somebody, we don't have a lot of time left, but if you sense that somebody is kind of on that edge, who do you tell? Well, I think the first thing is you try to talk to the person and reach out to them and say, you know, hey, I'm here for you if you ever want to talk, because social isolation is, a, is you know, one thing that drives people to this sort of thing. If they have any sort of relatives or anybody that you can reach out to, and, you know, finally, of course, if you really feel that this is a serious threat, it's better to be safe than sorry. And, you know, you should tell authorities that you think that there are some red flags. Unfortunately, our laws at this point are such that, you know, we don't have a lot of programs. We all need to work hard, I think, to have programs in place for the yellow flags and not just wait for the red flags of when someone's already been violent or something already has happened. We look back and sort of do this postmortem and say, ah, all the warning signs were there. If only we could have known. But the issue is we need more programs and more funding for programs where if there's someone who has these yellow flags, these warning signs, there are places that they can go and without stigma be able to reach out and get help. I think that's so important. 
I think so, too, and people do need to get involved in their communities and help your neighbors. I worry a little bit about the witch hunt aspect. You know, what if you report somebody and now they are forever hounded or branded as a nut and somebody who could cross that line or, hmm, don't want him babysitting our kids because he's a lonely little teenager. I mean, Absolutely, which is why, you know, we need programs for, you know, there are kids that are socially isolated. There's no doubt about it. There are many of our kids that are struggling, and instead of it being a stigmatizing, see, you're a bad kid and you can't connect, are there places and programs that we can put in place that really help make these kids feel more connected? But we have to invest in that. I think we have to make a decision, um, you know, as a culture that that's important to us. You know, violence prevention is so important as opposed to treating it afterwards. And, of course, unfortunately, we have to do that as well. Absolutely, and that's really great information about risk factors, what you can do, really get involved in your communities, tell somebody, talk to that person, see if they have relatives, look around your community, see where you can be of service and of help. If there are lonely kids, teach your children empathy about getting involved with those kids and making them feel better about themselves, too. We'll be a happier community as a whole. This is Melanie Cole. You're listening to Radio MD. If you miss any of the great information that we give, you can listen anytime, on demand or on the go at RadioMD.com. Thanks so much for listening and stay well. 